issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel, The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, the author of the novel, Love Marriage. Can you believe that this is our second Academy Awards episode? We have annual traditions. Holy crap. Do we <laughs> even remember who won last year? I have no idea. I literally do not know. Do you know? I, was it, it was Moonlight, right? Was it, I think it was Moonlight. Is that the one where they messed up who they were going to give it to? I think that, yeah, I, I think, think that's that right. was two years ago, Sugi. Okay, well then, whatever happened last year, All I right, totally blocked happened. <laughs> but I do know that I'm excited about some movies that are nominated this year, including Black Klansman, which was co-written by my friend and now internationally famous Lawrence, Kansas screenwriter and professor, Kevin Wilmot. Who just won a BAFTA, right? So yeah. cool. Yeah. Looking sharp um, on his tux on a red carpet somewhere in England. Very cool. Um, On the second half of the show, we'll have my old friend Emily Halpern, producer, screenwriter, and showrunner for the acclaimed ABC comedy Trophy Wife, the forthcoming show Carol's Second Act, and the forthcoming movie Booksmart to give us her take on writing for the big and small screens. But first, we're going to come full circle and welcome Britt Bennett to the show. Britt's debut 2016 novel, The Mothers, was a New York Times bestseller. Her work has appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, The Paris Review, and Jezebel, among other places. She's currently writing the screenplay for The Mothers, which is being made into a film by Warner Brothers and the actress-producer Carrie Washington. And she was a guest on the first-ever episode of Fiction of the Fiction Nonfiction podcast. Britt, hello. Hi, thanks for having me. Congratulations on getting The Mothers made into a movie, and with Carrie Washington, who, as you know, is a favorite of mine. Um, <laughs> can you talk to us a little bit about how that deal got done and what it felt like to get the green light? Yeah, I I was on the book tour at the time, and we had a, some interest from some different uh, people who were kind of interested in, in the rights for it. I think a lot of it came down to just the really good vibes we got from Carrie Washington and her team. Um, it was a team of all women, which was really exciting for me. Um, and as the process sort of continued and, and everything, it was really nice just to be able to like go to these meetings and walk into a room of all women. I feel like that seems very unusual in many aspects of life, let alone, let alone Hollywood. Um, so yeah, a lot of it I think came down to the fact that I love Carrie Washington as an actress. Um, and we got a lot of enthusiasm from them about the book. So when you say walk into meetings, like w- would she be there? Did you get to talk to her and hang out? Like, you know, I, I, think was- I, I saw a picture of you two together on Instagram, but I don't, you know, I, I want the backstory. <laughs> I wouldn't say hang out, but she was at uh, many more of the meetings than I ever expected her to be. Um, I, you know, I thought, okay, you know, her company buys the rights and I met her and I thought, okay, that's nice. She, you know, she wanted to introduce herself to me and she has many more very important things to be doing, but she came to a lot of these meetings. She read a bunch of the drafts. She was very involved as a producer. So it was really exciting as a fan of her work to get to interact with her on that way. Um, she like invited my mom and I onto the set of Scandal. So we got to like walk around in the sets and, oh, cool. and go, go through her closet and see the clothes and everything. So she's, she's been <laughs> awesome. The work was definitely one of the best part. I actually can't do the rest of the episode now because I'm dead. <laughs> What, did it, what does this set look like? You know, I've never been on a television show set. Well, it's funny because I was walking with her. She actually gave us like a tour while she was filming. And we walked into like one of the rooms and she was like, oh, yeah, I don't know whose bedroom this is. And it dawned on me, like, I guess if you're in the show, you wouldn't necessarily know each of the sets. But I immediately <laughs> knew that she hadn't done a scene in that bedroom. That- so who's yeah, it? I don't know. Exactly. It was like somebody's bedroom who she would never be in. So I like immediately knew and it was so strange in that moment that I'm like, I recognize this on site just as a fan of the show. And this person who's the star like has no idea. So, so yeah, it was everybody. I, I got to meet like the person who had written the episode and, and watch them film like a scene and, and all of that was really exciting. So I'd be curious to know what it has been like to be working on the script um, I have at least one writer friend who has successfully written a screenplay based on her own novel, Gillian Flynn, is from Kid City. But I can think of many more writing friends who stayed out of the screenwriting process entirely. What made you want to be involved? Or did you want to be involved? I mean, I think I came along to it very reluctantly. Um, okay. I had also heard from many writer friends to not adapt your own work. Um, 
very honestly, part of it was just Carrie Washington just charming me um, to death because she asked me <laughs> to do it and I wasn't going to tell her no. Um, but then I think really more practically, I was kind of excited by the possibility of learning a new form of storytelling, um, learning a new way to to sort of construct stories and to think about image and all of this stuff that was so different than what I, I think we do as novelists. So I was excited by that possibility of learning a new skill and, and getting to do it with somebody that I admired was, was icing on the cake. So you were like writing script drafts and turning them into her. Yeah, she was on the email chain. <laughs> she was on the email chain. So, so yeah, and she gave like really thoughtful feedback um, and had some really great ideas for it. So it was cool to to be able to um, interact with her and all the other producers and other people I was talking to in the studio and all of that in that way. So how many people are on an email chain like that? Is it, I just don't have any idea of the numbers. Is it, are you getting a lot of notes from different people? So it was basically, it was sort of the production side. So it was a couple of, Carrie, um, Carrie um, Natalie was the other producer I was working with. Um, so it was that side of it. And then we had the studio, which it kind of was like a hierarchy where like it goes to the production side and then they p pass it on to the studio. So I don't ultimately know how many people have read this, um, but that was kind of, I mostly interacted kind of on my side and then they mostly interacted with the studio. So there's a little bit of a buffer, I guess, perhaps to like shield the writer. I don't, I don't know the purpose of that, but, but that was kind of how it worked. Is it done? Uh, uh well, I mean, it's one of these things where I think my, my role has finished. Your part's over. Um, the, my part is over. Yeah what, hap yeah. what happens after this, I could not tell you. Um, it's up to the adaptation gods to see um, what happens with this project. But, but yeah, my part of it is over. I was contracted to do a certain amount of work. Um, so after this, it's kind of, you know, up to whatever happens with the, with the project from here on out. That's so interesting. So did you, did you feel like you learned a lot about a, about a different kind of writing? And was there a part of that that you found the hardest or surprisingly easy? Yeah, I found it very difficult. Um, I think the way I always thought about story, um, sort of prioritizing language over image, um, and this was kind of inverted. <laughs> the, the thing that I think that was challenging, but also that I learned the most from was the idea of being very efficient. Um, because in a movie, a scene has to do like five things, you know, it's like you need to establish five things about the characters, where you are in the story, all these other um, things that you need that scene to do, where in a novel, you can kind of take your time. Um, but I do think that it is good to learn how to be efficient. I remember at one point, one of the producers was like, you keep writing these scenes where people talk about doing something and then they go to do the thing. Like, why don't you just show them going to do the thing? <laughs> and it was like, it like cut me deep, but it was also very true. So it was one of those things now that I'm very conscious of when I'm writing fiction of just like, I don't need to tell, have people talking about going to the party and then showing them at the party. You can just get them to the party. And that's the thing that's really important in, you know, screenwriting for the sake of time and also money, but I think it's also very useful in, in the world of fiction. Whitney, can we call this episode Get Them to the Party? <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to have to find a party, Sugi. That's the problem. Uh, so one last question on this is uh, we talked about your book in, when you were on our very first episode, and it's a book that I enjoyed and know well, and I wondered if you had to make any or could talk about any changes you had to make in order to make the book work as a movie. I mean, very often books do need to be changed to work in screenplay form. And part of the difficulty of writing a screenplay is being willing to make those kinds of changes. Yeah, I think that was one of the hardest um, parts of it. Uh, I remember there was one writer who said to me, like, the reason why you shouldn't adapt your own work is because they just want you to, like, fix the flaws of the novel. And that's what they want for the screenplay. Um, and I don't know if that was the, the same. Uh, I don't know if I had that cynical of a reading of some of their suggestions, <laughs> but definitely they wanted uh, they wanted a really different structure. They wanted like a flashback structure, yeah. so it wasn't chronological in the way that the novel is chronological, which you understand for a film again because you have a condensed amount of time and you have to like establish a lot of things about the characters. You don't necessarily have the time to progress chronologically in the way that the book does. Right. Structurally, that was difficult for me because the order in which I had to present information was different. So 
instead of having, you know, you meet this girl and she's a teenager and this is what she's going and the choices she's making, you meet her as an adult. And it was almost like I had to think backwards through the story. So that was really challenging. And I understood um, why that was their suggestion, why they thought that that was the way the book could work. But I think that was also a really hard thing for me to kind of rewire my brain and rethink through this story that I had been thinking about for, you know, like 10 years in a, in a completely different way. Mm-hmm. Um, we definitely want to talk about the Academy Awards and the Best Picture nominees. And I'm curious about whether your experience writing the screenplay for The Mothers caused you to kind of watch movies differently. So I'm just going to rattle through the Best Picture nominees for this year. Black Panther, Black Klansman, Bohemian Rhapsody, The Favorite, Green Book, Roma, A Star is Born, and Vice. And so Spike Lee recently tweeted, Oscar So White definitely prodded the Academy to open up its membership, and that's why I think that you see films by people of color getting recognition now that they didn't get in the past. So what do you think about that slate of movies? Does it represent a meaningful change in representation from previous years? Uh, I, I think so. Um, I think out of all those nominations, Black Panther surprised me the most. Um, I think at first when they were when the Academy was talking about having that uh, best popular movie category, um, I kind of thought, oh, okay, this is what they're going to do. Like, they're going to have this sort of new category for the movies that they don't actually want to award anything prestigious. So then they can say, look, we have diversity. We gave Black Panther best popular movie. Da, da, da. Um, and it's such like a nonsense category because the box office is best popular movie. Like we have a way of actually determining <laughs> with what the most popular movie was. And that's called how much money it made. Um, but I, you know, I think part of it, I think expanding the field to so many movies, I think that has helped. Um, I think, uh, what Spike Lee said is true also about having a younger and more diverse membership. I think that really helps. Um, so I think to some extent, I think that there's definitely some progress that's been made. Um, but at the same time, um, yeah, I don't know. I had, I had questions about some of these, yeah, some of these nominations. Like what? <laughs> I think out of all those, the, the movie I actually loved the most was The Favorite. I thought The Favorite was... Oh, right. Um, that's one I didn't yeah. see. I know nothing about that movie. So yeah, The Favorite let's have I it. thought was... Yeah, I mean, I thought it was so funny and mean, and it was a movie that was both really funny and also deeply moving in a way that I didn't expect. Um, I, I thought that there were there was a lot of risk-taking in that movie and just like this idea of all of these women who are just sort of making these power moves around each other. And as the movie went on, I rooted for a different woman, like every from scene to scene, my, my allegiances were just changing. So I thought that movie was really fantastic. Um, but I think other, you know, movies like Green Book, I think there's still a sense of, um, you know, I read a, a piece, I forgot where this was, but they were saying how, you know, Spike Lee, uh, do the right thing, lost to Driving Miss Daisy. And for Black Klansman to be up against Green Book, which is kind of an inverse of Driving Miss Daisy, um, but still kind of plays into some of those tropes of sort of, uh, I guess, you know, benevolent interracial friendships um, that are transactional, but still uh, benevolent, I guess. Um that is sort of this historical parallel for the moment that we're in, that we've kind of progressed in a way, but there's still kind of these beloved, familiar sort of racial tropes. I think I read a lot of stuff on a, on a website called Shadow and Act that's been writing a lot mm-hmm. about that. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with that place. Yeah. Just real quick, though, will you just say what The Favorite is about? Because I, I legitimately do not know. Uh, so The Favorite is about Queen Anne, is Olivia Colman character, who is this very sort of ineffective queen. It, it's sort of Trumpian in the way that she listens to the last person in the room. So everybody is sort of jostling for favor. Um, the Rachel Weiss character is like her childhood best friend and also lover who is actually the real person who's running the country. She's kind of the person who is making these real big decisions and she has the most influence. But then Emma Stone's character arrives and she's sort of this down on her luck uh, girl who decides that she is going to climb to influence in this uh, sort of uh, palace by um, gaining favor with the queen. So the whole movie is sort of just the three of them kind of making these chess moves. And I love the idea that like these three women were running England. It was not, you know, these guys, you know, the women could not, you know, actually vote or participate in any type of sort of, actual way but these three women were actually running England uh, during a time of war while 
you know, the men were like, you know, racing ducks and doing whatever other ridiculous things they were doing around the <laughs> palace. Uh, so as I mentioned in the opening, I am a fan of Black Klansmen in part because one of the screenwriters, Kevin Wilmot, has taught at Kansas University, which is just up K-10 Highway from where I live in Kansas City. Um, and he's been teaching there for many years, but also seems to me like the most surprising movie to be on the list because it's provocative in ways I feel like a lot of these other movies, Black Panther, including Black Panther or Bohemian Rhapsody or Star is Born or Green Book are not. Um, I wonder what you guys thought about that film. Like, and, and, and uh, was it, is it the, is it, do you agree with me that it's the most surprising one to be here? Or, or there's some other one that you think is, a, is more of an outside shot? Well, you know, I, I thought it, I do think it's provocative. I thought Black Klansman was good. I didn't love it. Yeah. Um, I thought some of the sort of parallels it was creating between now is a little heavy handed, um, particularly the ending. I think the reason why I thought Black Panther was sort of the most surprising, um, I guess it was two reasons. One is genre, obviously. Um, right. It's the first superhero movie to be nominated for Best Picture. Um, there's a way in which, you know, I think it happens in fiction all the time, too. This idea that science fiction or romance or whatever, these things that are genre are less prestigious or less well-made than the literary. Um, so I thought that that was something that's cool. But I think the other thing that really interested me about Black Panther um, is that the conflict in the film was sort of – was interracial it was about conflicts between and amongst black people right um it wasn't about black characters reacting to or interacting with even white people and that to me seems like the type of film that is a lot rarer um it's not true of black Klansmen, it's true of green book it's not true of a lot of these movies that that actually end up getting touted by the academy the idea that like the central conflict in the movie is is between and amongst the black characters yeah, I think um, I always think of Black Klansmen in relation to Sorry to Bother You because I think I saw them very close to each other. And I think like the year that I think the Oscars are provocative will probably be the year that they include a movie like that, um, mm. which actually I, I also did not I didn't totally love it, but it was so audacious. Um, yeah. And yeah, and and got, I think, in some ways the the same sort of like conflicts um, between black characters in a complex way, it used satire and absurdity in um, more adventurous ways than almost anything. Where I was, I mean, I think it would have was a pipe dream to see it on the list, but um, and it's a much more anti-capitalist film. Yeah. Yes, that's why I wanted it on the list. Yeah. <laughs> um, I but think I guess that, is, that is that is a diff- that is a bridge that the Academy's not really quite ready to cross yet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, but um, I thought there were some interesting critiques of Black Klansmen's take on um just the police which i was interested in but that didn't prevent me from you know i like i enjoyed watching it i thought the dynamic between um john david washington and adam driver i thought they had an interesting dynamic i was interested in like the the female lead whose name is escaping me i thought she was really uh captivating and then there's that there's that moment when harry belafonte is on screen Mm -hmm. and you're just kind of like and i don't know i sort of felt like um the, the sort of gasp of recognition the way that it um that it played with actual, I mean, he's got such a tremendous history as an activist. It was cool to see him on screen. Uh, so those were some of the memorable moments of that film for me. I saw Kevin once give a really good lecture on sort of like film history. And he talked a lot about Harry Belafonte's movies. Um, I, it was just yeah. brilliant at lecturing on that. Well, I thought that was the most compelling thing about the movie. It was sort of the power of cinema, you know, this idea yeah. of birth of a nation and, yeah. and the, you know, the, the role that films do in creating these images that leave lasting and, and really deep implications on, on how our country and our world thinks. And I think also it would be, I would be, it would be a mistake not to mention that early scene in um, Black Klansman where the protagonist infiltrates uh, a Stokely Carmichael Kwame Ture rally put on by the Black Student Union at Colorado College and openly advocates violence against white society in terms and for reasons that are kind of Killmonger-esque, um, to put it in, in Black Panther terms. And I do think one of the, I mean, one of the interesting conversations around Black Panther was the sort of, um, right, there's this deep sympathy for Killmonger. You know, I think the the sort of question over was Killmonger right? I mean, I, I think it's funny to talk about. Um, and, and I think that he was right in the sense that the Wakandans, like, they do kind of suck, you know, when you think about it. Yeah. Like, you know, I think I, I went into the movie, I went into the movie not knowing much about, I, mean, I didn't read the comic books, I didn't know much about Black Panther, but my thought was, like, Wakanda is, like, this black utopia if, you know, 
if we were never colonized and if we were never enslaved. So I came, I went into it having that idea in my mind and then I left thinking to myself, my God, like imagine if you had, you know, the most advanced technology in the world and you watched the transatlantic slave trade happen and you did nothing. <laughs> like to me, the, the question of whether Killmonger was right is less interesting because, you know, he's, he's advocating a genocide essentially. So like, no, he's not right. Um, but, but to me, the question is like, was he understandable as a character and as a villain? And I think that's another thing that struck me about that movie and made the movie so powerful to me is because I found his pain so, so much more understandable than I generally do it for villains in anything, let alone in, in comic book movies. Yeah, um, I agree with that. I mean, it's it's it, it, uh, it's something that I teach a lot of my writing classes that if you're you're going to have ethical conflict, the best kind of ethical conflict is ethical conflict where both sides have a point. Yes. Yeah. And you know, yeah. the Russian guy who wants to blow up all the uh, all of the world because he wants more gold or whatever, you know, is not really have a lot of right. going for him <laughs> in terms of an argument. Right. You know, most Bond villains, not so much. You know. Right. And I think to me, like to me, the crucial scene in that movie is when uh, is when Killmonger visits the ancestral plane. And I remember the first time I watched it, I thought to myself, when he goes to the ancestral plane, he's going to go to that same like beautiful lavender savannah that T'Challa went to. But he doesn't like his ancestral plane is Oakland. (laughs) <laughs> and that was like the moment where I like, I, I really thought I was going to leave the movie feeling like joyous and empowered, but instead I just left feeling like, like, you know, burdened by like thoughts of, you know, the diaspora, just like, yeah. this is the legacy of the slave trade. Like you can't go back. Your ancestral plane is in this country. It's not, you know, wherever your, your ancestors were taken from. So to me, like, I, I love that the movie was, you know, I didn't expect to have, um, feelings that were that complex about the diaspora when I left like a Marvel movie, but mm. I did. Yeah. Can we go back to for a second to the, you were, you were talking about, um, I mean, feeling joy. And I know that you've written and talked a little bit about, um, you know, your own writing about, you know, violence against black Americans, et cetera, et cetera. And I think like one of the things that struck, stuck out to me in this year's movies were like in black Panther, right. There are these sort of, you know, it's conversations between black people. And then also just like these moments of intense joy, including in Oakland in those, um, in some of the scenes in Oakland, not the ancestral plane ones, but right, like the ending or, um, you know, when I think of watching if Beale Street could talk, which I feel like is also a big omission on the best picture list, right? Like so much of like the joy of watching that movie is just like, oh my God, these people are so in love. Yeah. Um, Which was just like such a pleasure to watch. Yeah. Um, how you thought about that in this year's films or, or th- that film in particular? Yeah, I mean, I thought, I, I agree. I thought Bill Street was uh, just like one of the most beautiful films I'd ever seen. Um, like sometimes I just get choked up when I think about just like that opening shot. The two of them walking together, it was like a beautiful fall day. They were both wearing really bright colors. And it's just that score. If you haven't listened to the score yet, like you can stream it or buy it. I mean, I just, like weep when I hear it. It's just the way that those strings sound. Um, all of the music in the movie is so gorgeous. So I think one of the things that frustrated me is I remember seeing like some critics who said that Beale Street was too beautiful. Like its beauty was a flaw. And to me, again, it, I came back to this idea of, of what expectations are for black movies or black stories. This idea that beauty is somehow either unexpected or it's something that actually detracts from the story because these stories are only supposed to be, you know, sociology. They're only supposed to be politics. They're only supposed to be about violence or about hardship. And it's like, that movie is definitely about those things. You know, it's the central conflict is, um, you know, this mass incarceration and this racialized violence um, that the characters are experiencing that keeps them apart. But at the same time, you know, I do want to see, these beautiful shots, like with that gorgeous score while they're walking together, the rain or, you know, their joy when they get that apartment or or those types of moments, those are just really important. So I think, you know, I think that was another sort of moment of frustration for me, uh, Beale Street being snubbed. I definitely thought it was one of the best movies of the year. That's really interesting. There was a, uh, a show of black abstract expressionist artists here in Kansas City that caused me to start reading about some of them and, and Howardina Pindell. And um, it's interesting because all of them have this tension in their careers because their paintings are about beauty and they're non-representational. And that's what they're into. 
but they would get criticized in the 70s and 80s for not being more political or right. socially oriented. Right. Um, I thought that was But I think, you know, I think the beauty is political, you know, like prioritizing aesthetic in a way can be a very powerful political statement. I totally agree. Yeah. And I also kind of wonder, you know, Moonlight was beautiful. Um, yes. And you kind of think about, you know, the politics, you alluded to this a little bit before with the driving Miss Daisy comment, you know, um, like what happens if can can a black movie win best picture two years in a row? I mean, <laughs> do, you know what I, do you know what I mean? Like there's sort of um, some part of me um, thinks about the way that politics like that play, like can can movies that are I mean, I think that those aesthetics, I mean, they remind me and I think, you know, that makes sense. Um, the kinds of beauty in those movies are are linked. And I don't know if in some way um, if Beale Street could talk was sort of pre-sunk by the notion that the quote-unquote diverse films only get so much. Yeah, and I wonder also, like, how much of it is uh, connected to the other movies that were nominated, um, you know, because, like I said, Green Book is a, is a sort of more familiar kind of Academy Award favorite, you know, this idea of an unlikely interracial friendship and people, you know, transcending or overcoming their biases, <laughs> Um, you know, that type of thing is the type of movie that Academy voters who, who, who do skew older and who skew white do love. Um, you know, it did really well at the box office. Um, critics didn't seem to like it as much, but I think it surprised people how many people went to see it. So that, you know, that's a type, uh, one type of movie, Black Klansman, which is a lot more overtly political, even though it is also, you know, love story. Um, so I think that there are these other kind of movies that in some way may feel more familiar to the Academy than a movie that is so deeply, you know, this kind of intimate love story between these black characters. Yeah, it sort of reminded me of um, your essay, I Don't Know What to Do with Good White People, where you wrote, we expect racism to appear cartoonishly evil like a Disney villain. Um, it just, you know, watching the trailer for that movie, I just sort of immediately had to click off and like hop on an exercise bike. I was like, I can't believe, I can't believe y'all made this movie again. Um, yeah. So there's, there's been a lot of controversy around the way that Bohemian Rhapsody frames Freddie Mercury's sexuality and changes history to perpetuate the trope of AIDS as kind of a punishment for gay promiscuity. I also wonder if we could talk about how that film about pop stardom is different from or similar to A Star is Born, which was also much talked about this year. Yeah, I mean, I I uh, have been watching Bohemian Rhapsody just recently with Gail um, and you know, we love Queen. Like, it's a great... Their music is awesome. And But I just thought, wondered why it had been nominated for an Academy Award. I didn't, I didn't know what was particularly special about the movie itself. I And I also get the complaints, and it, it does perpetuate the trope of AIDS as a punishment for gay promiscuity, and I think it is a problem, and I think there is issue, there are issues there that should be brought up, and that, to me, also was a... A little bit of a mark against it, but Britt, I know you're familiar with uh, *Stars Born*. At what you know, what was that movie like? You know, I, I liked it. I didn't love it. Yeah. Um, I expected to, so I think maybe that was part of my reaction to. It. I went into it with really high hopes. I mean, I thought it was very well made. It's well acted, well directed. Um, I just think ultimately, you know, I was like always. I kept watching and thinking, like, how would this movie be different? Um, you know, it's been remade so many times, and I kept thinking, like, what would be a, a way that they could remake this that would make it feel like a fresh story to me? Um, <laughs> and maybe and it's like, not this one that I'm watching now. Right? I mean, <laughs> what I kept going back to was, like, oh, what would this be like if it were gender flipped? Um, and I think so much of it really is, you know, about this male anxiety of being replaced by a woman who is ascending as you are falling. And that is so deeply, like, grounded in our, in our gendered reality. But I did kind of think like, oh, that would be at least for like, like a really different story that I was experiencing and something that I haven't seen a lot, sort of that idea if it were flipped um, between uh, the male star and the female star. Um, but I thought it was definitely definitely well made. It was well acted. I cried a bunch of times. So worth seeing for sure. Um, I just, yeah, I kind of left and wanted to, I guess, feel a little bit more from, from that story. I'm just going to say that my money is on Roma. I haven't seen it yet. It's amazing. I just thought... Should I see it in the theater? Or should I see it on Netflix? I mean, it is it is the movie on there that is most similar to what Britt was talking about when she's talking about if Beale Street could talk. You know, I mean, it's about a family and love and, and, and intimacy. Except, of course, there is 
this difference where there is this character who is indigenous, uh, who's working in this family, and she is the center of the movie. And her at once connection to and isolation from this family is sort of what the movie pivots around. It's really quite a remarkable movie. For Best Picture? Yeah. I think it's a great movie. Did you see it? I haven't seen it yet. No, because my, my, my friend was like, you've got to see it in theaters. It's not the same if you watch it on Netflix. Um, so I, I really do want to, I want to go see it. Um, I just think, you know, I think, I think if Green Book wins uh, the discourse after, <laughs> we'll, I'll, I'll just be bracing myself for the discourse. Um, be a bad day on Twitter. Twitter. It'll be a terrible day on Twitter. Um, but I think it's the way, I think, I think Gia Tolentino wrote about this a couple of years ago, but the way in which like almost we're in a moment where like everything that happens culturally has some type of political, like immediate political analog, whether it's the Super Bowl, whether it's the Oscars, whether it's the Grammys, um, you know, so I feel like the political discourse that will emerge from that will be completely unbearable, regardless of how you feel about the movie at all. So kind of bracing myself against that, <laughs> against that one, but we'll see what happens. You know, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I was realizing you guys were talking about Bohemian Rhapsody, too. Did either of you read that New York Times? There was a New York Times piece where they, I think maybe they do this annually, they interviewed a bunch of Academy voters about oh, sort of I how they those. vote. I well, hate it's like, those. I didn't it's, read it. It's the worst. Um, you, you're, I they're mean, always you're terrible correct. people. They're terrible people. But yeah, was I, it interesting <laughs> this year? Yes. I mean, like many of them were terrible people. Um, you know, like one person was like voting for Green Book because they didn't like being told what was bad to like. Um, right. <laughs> but an interesting thing was that all 20 people they interviewed said they were voting for Rami Malek for Best Actor for Bohemian I Rhapsody. He was fantastic. That's what I heard that. I heard the movie was OK, but he is amazing. I I mean, and I love Bohemian Rhapsody. I will say uh, to our listeners, Bohemian Rhapsody is my is my go to karaoke song. It's astonishing that I haven't gotten to see this movie yet. But um, yeah, like the movies of the of the reviews of the movie were so lukewarm, and then the reviews of him were so were so great. I I should try and um, I think if it's still in theaters, I should try and get a look at it before it before it heads out. But um, you made me want to see Roma on the big screen too. So I guess we'll see. <laughs> well, Sugi, I just went to Best Buy and got a giant TV and watched it on that. What do you think about that? <laughs> I, uh, I, I fear. I, I capitalized fear, out and got one. I fear owning a giant TV when I'm trying to finish a book. I'm just afraid. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think, I don't think I should do it. Um, but that, that is also, that is also tempting. So all right, Britt, thank you so much for joining us on the Fiction on P- Fiction podcast. You have a special place in our heart from being um, our pal and also from our very first episode. And we're so happy to have you back. Yeah, thanks for having me back. It was great talking to you. Yeah, thanks, you guys. It was good. This episode of Fiction Nonfiction is brought to us by Great Courses Plus. As diligent readers... Um, just like you, our listeners, we're constantly seeking to learn new things and gain skills and insights into the books and novels and poetry and essays and characters that fascinate us to better appreciate our own world. And the Great Courses Plus is a wonderful tool for that. The streaming learning service offers in-depth and reliable information on just about anything that we're interested in, whether it's literature, history, science, psychology, cooking, learning a new language. There's unlimited access to thousands of topics presented by experts uh, who are so passionate about what they teach and are offering their expertise through this, again, streaming service. You know, so you can watch or listen entirely on your schedule from anywhere, which is super convenient. Yeah, you know what's been my schedule for listening? Let me guess, on your run. Yeah, except for I don't get to go on runs anymore because the winter's so bad. It's just me over and over again on a treadmill looking out, sadly, on a field of snow. And listening to The Secrets of Great Mystery and Suspense Fiction, which is the episode that we've been listening to this week. Um, I, to, today, while I was sitting there on my treadmill, listen, looking out at this terrible field of snow, the only thing that I was excited about was listening to this actual episode. And it was the it was an episode of this particular series on uh, Latino crime writers and Latino and Latina crime writers. And 
I mean, the the lecturer was talking about people I had I I want to go read and had never heard of Rolando Inayosa, Rodolfo Anaya, and Lucha Corpi were the three of the names that uh, writers that he was talking about. It's a fascinating lecture. Like I'm being introduced to writers that I feel like I should know and do not know. I mean, and sort of the depth that you get with a series of lectures like this is. Sadly enough, Sugi, like better than you're going to get with a podcast most of the time. Um, but that's why, you know, we're excited to have them advertising with us. And that particular course is 36 episodes, right? Which is pretty great. A lot. So I, I must be a lot of really fields of snow that I'm going to have to survive <laughs> until March. We do live in the Midwest. Yes. So there's so much to discover on the Great Courses Plus. We think that you will also love it. And to help you get started, they're offering our FNF listeners a special limited time offer, a full month of unlimited access to their entire library for free. And you just sign up through our special URL today to start enjoying your free month. Yeah. So just remember, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash lithub. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash lithub. And now we're thrilled to welcome Emily Halpern, who's joining us from Los Angeles. Emily is a screenwriter, television writer, and producer in Hollywood, where she has been the showrunner of the critically acclaimed ABC comedy Trophy Wife and written for dramas like The Unit, Private Practice, and Blackish. She's also half of the screenwriting team behind the forthcoming movie Booksmart and the forthcoming television show Carol's Second Act. Emily, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. Um, So for our listeners, Emily is one of my oldest writing friends. We went to college together and have been talking about literature since we were both English majors assigned to the same freshman dorm room. Um, Can you trace your path in Hollywood for our audience and for Whitney? I think most of our listeners are literary writers. I think we have a lot of people who are interested in how one moves to Hollywood and gets started in this business, as I recall. We have interested who want to know about the piles of money. That's what they really want to know about. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I'm also still trying to figure out the piles of money mm. part. Yeah, I ha- it's so funny. And when th- I, I obviously at this point, like you meet so many writers and everybody has a different story and a different way they sort of got their like foothold in the business. And it's, uh, I mean, Sugi, as you know, it's it's like as opposed to like that path through graduate school where at least the, the path is clear. This can happen so many different ways. Um so my my path was in college. I was always interested in theater and writing, and and uh, knew I wanted to write in some capacity. And I was very lucky. I, I was hired to be an assistant um, for the playwright and screenwriter David Mamet, who at the time lived in uh, well, he lived uh, outside Boston, but had an office in in Cambridge. And and so I worked part time uh, in college in that office and got to know him. And he was supportive of my. Of my writing career. Wait, was um, that was that like part of school, or was that a different thing? No, it was different. It was oh, it was wow. just one of these yeah kind of odd serendipitous coincidences where where did you he, apply for this thing or did you I just did like, ah, yeah okay. yeah I did and yeah I was very lucky to so, to, to get that to get that. Um, I'm sorry, I'm position. just curious, like how like was there like a want ad? You know, like, how did he, no, you know what how did I had, asked um, for applications. A, a couple years earlier, and I'm trying to even remember how this happened, I had gotten a job as a PA on one of his movies that had uh-huh. filmed sort of in in Massachusetts. And then, and that job is, you know, you're kind of low rung on the totem pole. It was like, I was, you're, you're kind of a gopher just doing whatever needs to be done on a movie set. But I was a little bit in, I, I made some connections to, to him and the people in his life. Like I got to know his assistant a little bit that way. So b- basically when a couple of years later he was looking for a part-time assistant, I heard about it through some of the people that I'd met, um, as a PA. And yes, I went and applied and, and, um, and got that job, which was, which was great. And it, yes, ironically, like I had nothing to do with college at the time, but it was a great, great part-time job to have while I was in college. Um, but simultaneously, I, I comped the uh, the Lampoon at, at school, which was a comedy writing magazine and, and uh, was always sort of working towards just getting a, a foot in the writing industry however I could. I'm bringing in two really wonderful writers to Kent City this Wednesday, Damaris Hill and Anthony Grooms. And one of my students raised her hand in class as I was exhorting them to come to the reading. She's like, 
why would I want to meet them? Yeah, yeah. Oh, my and God. I, you know, I, I was saying, like, they should come out to dinner with us. You can meet the writers. Not not why would I want to go to the reading. I get that. They were, they're like, why, right. would I, why, why, what's the use of meeting a writer? And I'm like, well, you just explained right there, you know, no, exactly why true. that matters. And it also, like, I happened to, my, uh, I could you know, talk through it. But basically the first writing job I ever got, it came from, I had been in Los Angeles um, for a couple, maybe not two years, like a year and a half. And, you know, had some friends out there and was making inroads where I could, you know, getting my scripts into people's hands. But it was, I was working as a temp. I had some different like assistant jobs for a while, but it was actually the co- the connection to David Mamet. It was another coincidence, but he uh, wound up getting a show on the air called The Unit for CBS. It was an hour-long military drama. Uh, I always figured I'd wind up in comedy, but still, this was, you know, obviously a great opportunity. And he hired me first as the writer's assistant for that show. And then I was given a freelance script and eventually promoted to writer. But but yes, that absolutely was all through my just having known a writer of a TV show. And, and it, that's kind of the thing, like whether you're, no matter who you're meeting, you never know, like the writer you're meeting could be someone you collaborate with or could be the next person to get a show on the air who's going to hire you. It's I, I feel like it's always very valuable to know other writers. Know. Also, I'm just going to say in this industry in particular, so often, like the people you hire, or the people who hire you, they're just people you know from other writers or know socially or have gotten to know their writing through different pathways. But it's 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 incredibly helpful to know other writers. I remember um, I remember visiting you on the set of the unit. I think it might have been the first one of the first times <laughs> yeah. I visited you in L.A. I remember and that. Yeah, I was like, you know, and I had been, um, we just, we were talking about A Star is Born with with Britt Bennett, and I was thinking about, you know, Bradley Cooper, and then there was another alias um, person on that show, um, Scott Foley, right, and De- right. Dennis Haysbert, who was like 12 feet tall and had been doing those voiceovers <laughs> yeah. for, for commercials, and um, it was, I was sort of, I was like, this is what it's like, this is, you know, I'm, I'm watching it happen, and um, I remember also when we were in school together, you sort of coming home from David Mamet's office, and I would be like, you work for a writer. What is this like? Yeah. <laughs> and um, you also in college, did you take a class with one of the writers of The Sopranos? Am I remembering that right? I did. That was, he was also like a former um, student and had come back and uh, it wasn't, I don't, I'm trying to remember now whether it was a class for credit or sort of an elective. I don't honestly remember, but yes, he came back and was just teaching drama writing and teaching writing for TV. And, uh, and it was, it was fantastic. It was just like, yet you know, another, he was like an alumni, obviously, but, but came back and, and yeah, that was a fun class. I remember that. And he also just told a lot of fun, like behind the scenes, Sopranos. Well, Suki, we got to slow down a little bit here (laughs) and talk about what Sugi was like in college a little bit more. (laughs) How much am I allowed to say? Everything. It's like from I edit the show, podcast, so we'll get all the good stuff in. I try. I promise. <laughs> uh, Sugi worked incredibly hard in college because uh, Sugi was on the Crimson. You, I, I mean, I just my. I mean, Sugi so she and I was were like the, So wait, is this a was this like the odd couple? Ben Sugi was like the serious one. Is that how that worked? <laughs> I think we were both serious, oh, but both one of us was serious. on the Lampoon and one of us was on the Crimson. Okay, yeah, yeah we Lampoon were on rival publications. So it was, I feel like people made note of that a few times, that we were roommates who worked for rival publications that would like sneak into each other's offices and steal each other's stuff. <laughs> um, but no, Why I did think you, you're right. How did you become serious. friends? Did, were, you, were you always roommates? Were you just roommates by assignment? How did that happen? We were assigned. Weren't we freshman year roommates? Yeah, we were, we were freshman year roommates. So we were assigned together and... Um, yeah, it was just actually it was total chance. And at that point, you were pre-med. Um, goodness, that's right. And I was one of the people there was like this, <laughs> like pertussis whooping cough epidemic went around our freshman year. <laughs> Sugi still and, has that. Yeah, oh, no. Sugi. <laughs> no, but but this I, the, yeah, this was because, the amazing thing. People thought yeah. it was like a medical miracle because we were sharing an actual room, like not not like that's the thing. Yeah. Freshman year, you are we our beds were in the same room, and I had whooping cough, and I would just cough 
incessantly all night while Sugi slept next next to me, like in another bed, but still. And it is such a testament, Sugi, I think, to your character that we are friends today. (laughs) (laughs) uh, That must have been awful for you. I'm sorry. I think I like don't even really, I think a lot of the time I was so tired that I was just like, Em, I hope you feel better. Can I help you? And then I would sort of, you'd be like, I'm fine. I'll struggle on. And I would face plant and, and would sort of both be, yeah, my, but later, my my father, who's a physician, was astonished. He was like, Emily had pertussis and you yeah. didn't catch it? Yeah. Because I'm sort of notorious, as Whitney knows, for catching everything. One more question. <laughs> I'm a little afraid. This is what I really want to talk about. <laughs> what? I mean, she says she was tired. Was that because she was out rocking all the good parties? Or is that because she was studying in the library? What was she doing all this, all, all the time? I My sense was it was a lot of working. Um, but, uh, but both for classwork and the crimson. I mean, I, Sugi, I, Sugi had her moments of, of, uh, partying, but, um, such as, wait a minute, (laughs) I deny, I categorically deny all of this. (laughs) I, um, I don't, you know, no, like I'm, I'm not thinking of any specific party memories, although Sugi and I definitely would get drunk together and do ridiculous things. Um, but my actually Sugi, I wonder if you remember this. One of my my clearest memories of Sugi from college was just that you would fall asleep in the shower. <laughs> All right, now we're getting somewhere. That's true. That's true. It's but true. it was I get it. It was warm. It was you had you had a moment to yourself. Yeah, I think I'm, we had a um, by our senior year we had a, a third roommate, our our friend Katie, and it's true that Emily and Katie had a standing request that if I like went into the shower and didn't come out in what they felt was a reasonable amount of time, they should knock because you discover her in there to make sure she didn't drown or something. Just like a just a, just keeping tabs, keeping tabs on things. There was a lot of there was a lot of fatigue. Um, which, yeah, I think like I had, a, I had a lot of insomnia, which I think is like, a, I suppose I, I think I thought in some way that that was writerly and maybe, I don't know, maybe it is, but it no longer, no longer serves me. I can chart a reasonable period of time <laughs> while staying awake now. One of my adult achievements. <laughs> All right. So sadly, moving on from the, the college years, um, <laughs> you started in theater and television and then moved to hour long dramas and now we're writing sitcoms and films. Uh, how did you transition to writing movies and what was that switch like on a craft level? You know, what was it like the first time you wrote and had to pace something out longer? The first movie I wrote was with my now writing partner, Sarah Haskins, an incredibly talented and funny person. And I'm very lucky to write with her. She makes me say that every time I do anything. Um <laughs> But no, we, um, it was funny because, uh, I had, I had written for the unit. I was at that time writing for the show private practice on ABC and, but was sort of trying to make my way into comedy more, just knowing that's where I felt most comfortable and that's where I wanted to try and write. Um, at least then. And Sarah had been doing, we had also known each other in college and she had been in Chicago, uh, doing improv and, and was at second city and she moved out to L.A. to work for Current TV. And so we wound up just connecting socially. But it was over a dinner we were talking about. We both had sort of a similar idea for a movie we wanted to write, which was about teenage girls in high school. And we sort of felt like we'd seen so many movies about it was often about like teen boys in high school and they wanted to have sex. And that was always the goal. And we felt like we hadn't seen a movie that really represented teen girls in high school where the genesis of the idea was like having sex is negotiable, but for the girl, it's just about getting the boyfriend. And that, and we, we, so we wanted to kind of try and write a movie like that from the girl perspective. And, uh, and we teamed up to do it at the time because we've just both had full-time jobs and sort of felt like the only way either of us was going to get it done was having somebody else to be accountable towards. And, and it worked. And we, we met up, you know, late nights after work and on the weekends. And we were also in this early phase of our writing partnership where we were each too timid to offend, tr- say anything that might offend the other person. So every idea was like, sure, let's try that. Sure, let's try that. So <laughs> we ended up with this, I think it might have been like 160 pages. I mean, a screenplay should not, a comedy screenplay, like 110 max. It was just this massive, <laughs> ridiculous um tome that we then had to go through and and um and shorten and take out the stories that weren't working but that that process 
was the whole thing was that was a learning experience. Like we just wrote everything we could think of and then went through it and, and learned to sort of match our voices so that it wasn't too obvious who, which of us had written different, uh, different scenes and, and bits of dialogue. And I think over the years, we've gotten much, much better at that. We sold that movie, which is called Booksmart, which is now <laughs> about to come out. So that also gives you a sense of how long it can take for, uh, for a movie to go through the whole development process. Because that was, I think, 2000 and, uh, what must that have been? Like nine that we wrote that movie. Mm. It's coming out in, it's coming out at the end of May, right? Yeah, yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. And it's funny, like, we're very excited. And it was, it was the first thing that we wrote. And, but having gone through the whole development process, it has been through several other writers. It has been through several different studios that were producing it. And so at this point, we've had very little to do with the final product. It'll be exciting when it comes out. But at the same time, it's not the original script we wrote. So it's just kind of a different experience. There's a big difference between writing for TV and for movies. Like in, in, with TV, isn't there generally a writer's room, right? And this is a group of writers who work on it. So, but writing for a script for a screenplay for a movie, you often have a writing partner. But there's two people who are going to finish that uh, thing. Is that is that right? Am I accurate in thinking about those differences? Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting. Like we obviously we've had. Um, I guess it's fair to say we've had some more success in TV. Um, but one of the reasons we wound up kind of wanting to try. So wait, when you TV. say we, you mean you and and uh, Sarah Haskins? Yes, yes. Okay, and but um, she, when you do a writing room, is she there? But there's other people too, or or do you guys yes. actually write? Okay. No, absolutely, and and whether it's our show or we're hired as a team on a on somebody else's show, it's it's either the two of us as writers in the writers room or the two of us as you know showrunners, and we hire a staff. But but either way, it's it's we are um, she and I are, are you always come together. Team. You yeah okay. And that's pretty unusual. Is that right? You know, there are writing teams out here. It's kind of always up to, um, it's whatever works. Like, I think actually neither of us was looking exactly for a writing partner. Like, we, it more just happened organically. We wrote Booksmart together. At That sold. It branded us as a team. And so then we were sort of getting offers for different projects as a team. But that said, we have, um, I mean, you know, everybody's different, but we love working together as a team. I think from a writing standpoint, our skills really complement each other. Like I, I think having written for the Lampoon, I maybe come at it from the perspective of a writer and Sarah has such a performance background and she comes at it with that, that experience. And, and so I think we, we, our skills and weaknesses, like they complement each other nicely. Um, but also it's, I, I will say we found it just as people in the world with various life events. Like I, you know, just had a baby and we're in the middle of making this pilot for CBS and stuff. You know, it's, it's just nice when someone's got your back, you know, and, and it's like, I've been there for her. She's been there for me. And it's also nice in a process that can often feel completely insane. Like there's always someone there with you where you feel like I'm not crazy, right? This is insane. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So I think for us, the uh, advantages far outweigh the, only one obvious disadvantage, which is sharing your paycheck with that person. <laughs> right. So as you were working on Booksmart, you know, which you wrote, as you were saying, in 2009, yeah. I'm just curious, you've, you've had so many other, you've done so many other projects um, since you wrote that movie, including other other movies, um, other TV shows. Have you, do you feel like you now have some sort of understanding or pattern for what things will work because when I, I mean, I'm just sort of a lay person reading the trades, but you know, I can't, I can't tell when I talk to you about things that you're working on. Um, you know, I know that there are some things where, you know, I'm always, I'm excited about the ideas that you tell me about or, you know, the news that I see about you, but I don't always have a sense. Sometimes I'm like, Oh, that one landed. And, um, that one took 10 years, but landed, um, so have you, do you feel like it's discernible to you what the patterns are? No, not at all. <laughs> I, wish I, I wish I did. And I, I, I feel like most of the time nobody does that, you know, so, so often what is a hit or what, what hits is, is a surprise to as many people as it, as it is not, you know, it, I feel like what I can say is I think I and Sarah and I have gotten much better at writing uh, like our stories are stronger our comedy is stronger i think that 
certain aspects of the job are not surprises to us anymore. You know, we went through the process of created and, and ran a, a show called Trophy Wife for ABC, which was actually loosely based on Sarah's uh, life. And uh, we are currently making the pilot for a, a show on CBS called uh, Carol's Second Act, starring Patricia Heaton. And uh, should that go forward, which we hope it will, we will continue to run that show. That um, I feel like all the experience we have, it just better prepares us for each next experience. But no, it, it nothing has, has helped me understand. You know, I also feel like everything's always changing. Like the market's changing. What people are looking to buy is always changing. Um, you know, one like type of movie will succeed and suddenly that's what every studio wants to buy and one type of movie will fail and suddenly you can't sell that type of movie for a while like it, it's just changing so often that I think any big success winds up being some combination of like good writing and talent but also luck and serendipity and timing and and it's it's very hard to predict what's going to succeed and what won't in well, my that's, opinion that's the old William Goldman line may he rest in peace since he recently died of nobody knows anything right Is that's that, right that's yeah. right and I do find that to be true um yeah <laughs> I think it, I think that that line holds up do you ever listen I do listen to my main Hollywood podcast is script notes do people listen to that out there do you do you follow that you know John August admit, and Craig Mazin it's a it's an interesting I have podcast. heard about it and I have had it recommended to me and I have not yet listened but I have heard and I, I've I mean I've heard that it's a it's a good podcast it's very craft oriented I mean they, they say a lot of the things that you're saying right now uh, not to mm-hmm. discourage uh, listeners from listening to our podcast and hearing them first here. <laughs> I mean, they probably didn't say that stuff about Sugi. No, they didn't. They didn't have the. They didn't have the goods on Sugi. That is absolutely true. Um, so I'm sort of getting to what you were talking about with um, like the kinds of movies that people are paying attention to. We were talking earlier to Brett Bennett about you know the the movies that are nominated for Best Picture, and we were talking a little bit about you know the inclusion of Black Panther, which I think surprised a lot of people. And yeah. I was just thinking about, you know, also the omission of If Beale Street Could Talk and Sorry to Bother You and about the ways that comedy is sometimes not regarded with the same value as drama. And what do you have you seen the industry shift over the time that you've been participating in it? I definitely have. And I I feel like maybe I see the shift more clearly in television and also just with there's so many platforms and I feel like so much of the writing is being done for television, including like the Netflix and the, you know, all the new um, platforms. But I definitely feel like there's a, it's a much less clear distinction between what is comedy and what is drama, which I I think is a a good thing. And, and, um, you know, early and when I first started writing, you were either a drama writer or you were a comedy writer. And that was one of the reasons when I got my first job at the, on the unit, I was really anxious to get out of that space before I got pigeonholed as a drama writer. And I remember very early after I got that job, I would get calls from my agent like, oh, they're interested in you in at JAG. Or, and I was like, no, no, this is not what I want. NCIS. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> But it was like I mean, I totally that, remember that show, The Unit. I do remember that coming out. And it was a big oh, yeah. deal that David Mamet was going to do a TV show. It was a huge yeah. news. And it was great. And it was wonderful. And I still feel like he, obviously, but like I learned so much just about storytelling and how to craft a story and tell a story that, and that is so valuable, whatever, whether you're writing comedy or drama. I mean, and I, the way Sarah and I write and the way I think so many shows are written, you know, in a comedy, you, you need a very strong story. And then you put you know, the jokes into that story. But it's not just like writing a series of jokes. I mean, every every script needs like a very strong story in order to work. So it's all the experience has been so valuable. But I do think I, like Sarah and I actually just wrote for the first time for an hour long um, this past year, Good Girls on NBC. And it was just a lot of fun. And there was some comedy, but there was also a lot of drama. And I feel like I have seen both watching shows and watching what comes out, but also now through experience, like that the industry seems to have opened up in a nice way to the idea that you can write comedy and drama and a lot of shows have a a little bit of both. I I recently just finished, I like, I think tons of people did Russian Doll on Netflix. I don't know if you guys have seen that. I've heard Um, of it, haven't seen it. I loved it. And that is like, it it was just, it's like great storytelling. It was dark. It was comedic, but that was like, it's just one, one example of something where it's like the lines are blurred between comedy and drama. And it was just like a really engaging show. 
I have but it a, sounds like you think film has a little bit of catching up to do. Is is there a film that you think um, gets at the same thing at all? I mean, it's interesting. Some of my favorite films, you know, growing up or, or still are like, you know, Terms of Endearment, something like that, where it's it's moving and heartfelt and they're very dramatic moments. And at the same time, like some of the funniest lines. So I, I think I've always liked movies that that. Are, can be a little bit of both, but yeah, I, I do agree with you that I, I think it's always been, um, it's been harder. Like, as you said, not a lot of comedies get nominated for Best Picture. I think that's that's still true. But also, isn't it much harder to get them made? I mean, the kind of independent by I mean independent story, original IP, you know, like uh, movies are the hardest kinds to make now compared to something that has. A franchiser will go on and on like that. Isn't is is that is that not true? That's definitely true, yeah. and I think yeah, it's just it's it's absolutely true, and I, even more so than when you know I first came out, and I and it's it's what we hear all the time. I think the the franchises have kind of taken over in movies and the Marvel, and it's and you know a romantic comedy, you know anything else. It's just it's ex- that's exactly right, and I do think it's why a lot of people are sort of flocking to the the other platforms, and like you can sell movies now to maybe you know you sell it to a netflix or to a lot of these new screaming uh screaming streaming platforms <laughs> um, but i do and that's my sense like sarah and i have been out of of movies for a little while so it's it's always possible that that's changing but it does seem like right now if it's not like a big a big franchise that but it's very would be a standalone like comedy yes right it would and ours and annapurna was the uh producer on that and this this will be their first comedy i believe i remember like what what did i go to see i went to see american hustle with my parents Mm -hmm. and at the end of it um the name annapurna came on the screen and my parents like it's an indian word and my parents as south asians sort of recognized it we're like what is this (laughs) are we are our people now in the business of entertainment and as over the years like since they've been making since they've been producing movies i've had a lot of um I like a lot of their movies, and I remember yeah. you telling me that that was their first comedy, um, which is which is really cool. Yeah, I love that movie. I thought that was a great movie. Um, I'm going to yeah, bring this the last great. movie. The last comedy I saw was uh, Spaceballs. So I don't know if anybody <laughs> oh has been following those kinds of movies. <laughs> <laughs> I decided a- it was time to take my children and introduce them to Mel Brooks. That's fantastic. So we've been talking about. Um, having the Schwartz uh, around the house a lot. Wait, that's right. I called you and you were watching Airplane. Yeah, that was next on the list. They didn't like that as much. Not enough action. I don't know. Too cerebral. So, Em, if you were giving uh, the aspiring screenwriters um, or TV writers among our listeners recommendations for great movies to watch or ways to think about writing their first scripts um like what would you tell them to watch oh my gosh that's difficult um i will say i i think it was true of me and sarah i would say one thing is i i mean you can sort of pick your own favorite movies like i just mentioned terms of endearment i think in terms of romantic comedies what i really like those richard curtis movies and i think they're you know there's so many like i'm a big aaron sorkin fan a few good men so many Movies you can point to that's it's an example of a great movie or a great script. Um, but I would say one thing that I found, and I, I my belief, this is my belief about how Sarah and I kind of broke out and, and sold Booksmart, is that just having a unique voice will, that's, that's how to get noticed. And I, I don't necessarily mean a voice no one's ever heard before, but, but as opposed to trying to mimic or copy, and I know that's not what you're suggesting, but, you know, someone else's movie or someone else's, dialect or something I think you know Sarah and I kind of had Booksmart felt fresh like it was at the time it was a fresh idea the jokes were sort of fresh and people weren't doing too many jokes from basically the the point of view of two nerdy high school girls and and I think it stuck out obviously it wasn't a big concept there wasn't superheroes it wasn't big set pieces but it, it just stuck out because it was not like a lot of the other screenplays that were being read at the time so I do feel like it's just finding your own perspective and getting that on the page. And I, I personally feel like just writing anything, whatever for whatever like medium you're writing in that just finding your voice is the, is the key to, um, to a lot of it. 
That is uh, fantastically helpful. Thank you. I'll be uh, I'll be making my students listen to that because I agree with you in every part of that answer. Um, and I, by the way, also like feel like I started out doing the opposite. It's very tempting. You start out, you write spec scripts, and you're it's just like exercises in mimicry for a long time yeah. until you kind of figure that out. But and so it's I don't it's it's not to criticize. I think it's the most natural thing in the world. But it is finding your own voice that I think really gets you like on that path. So I have one last question here, my a very Hollywood geek question from the guys <laughs> watching Spaceballs in his uh, uh, living room. Uh, what is it like to attend a big awards show? I have, um, I can't tell you what it's like to attend the Oscars, but I have been to the Emmys. Um, we'll take it. I was, I was, uh, at the Emmys, was it last? It was two years ago for, uh, Sarah and I were nominated for Blackish. We were writing on Blackish. And, um, you know, it's fun. I mean, it, it is. It's fun. And even you get to, you get to dress up and you get to go and you see all these, um, you know, celebrities, you, you're, you're, I mean, inevitably you're coming across actors in your work, but it's just kind of fun when you're seeing them do their perform on stage and, and, uh, I will say one thing that was a bit of a surprise when you're like, as you see on the Emmys, when you're going through the sort of the press line area, the actors and all the celebrities go through this sort of front line and they're in front of all the cameras and people are stopping them for interviews. But then the writers, directors, sort of non-recognizable people are just kind of skirted like behind them. So you're in this (laughs) parallel line and you're, walking just it, like it, it's parallel lines you're there they're between you and the cameras but it's just the most bizarre <laughs> thing in the world. you're just you're like you're in the line of people that nobody cares to speak to um i was surprised how hungry you get also they do tend to go on for a long long time but there is almost like a um, uh one one person had brought i guess had been to the Emmys many, many times, had like sleeves of Ritz uh, crackers with him and was oh. passing them. Oh. <laughs> uh, I was it, like, oh yeah, the, this guy's a pro. Was He's it theater seating? Yeah, like, it's like okay. big sort of auditorium theater seating. But when you're nominated, you get like a good um, a good seat just in case you might have to go up on stage. Um but it's again, it's funny, and 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 like backstage, it's like a concession. Like you could you can go get food, you can hang out, and it was also a surprise to discover. Like I snuck out to use the bathroom a couple times, and there were just like tons of people hanging out. It's a big networky fun party, but it was great. It was a lot of fun. And then after the uh, the actual award show, there's something called the Governor's Ball, which is basically a big dinner for for everybody uh, nominated, and it's just enormous and this huge tent, and they've got all sorts of like little chocolates with little Emmys logos on them and it's and it's just basically like a big party it sounds great it sounds like a a strange combination of like a like a um like a sports presser the a high school prom and a south asian wedding (laughs) (laughs) the last of which is described it better than i did (laughs) well i just i just remember like i you know south asian weddings like at least the ones i went to when i was a kid which were you know primarily sri lankan and hindu they would be so long and then like little girls are basically like conscripted into carrying around trays of snacks for everyone (laughs) and then everyone's sort of sitting there like gossiping and eating their snacks that the little girls have brought to them um Oh, yeah. And just like it sort of seems interminable and yet also fun. Yeah. Interminable and also fun is a great way to describe an award show. If I am ever so lucky to be nominated again, I will definitely be packing some snacks. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Emily, uh, we'll be looking forward to that nomination. uh, (laughs) Thank you. And your new show, uh, as well as Booksmart, which opens on May 24th. And thanks so much for joining us. Thank you both so much. Thanks, Em. Thanks, Sugi. I'm sorry I told everyone that you took long showers. (laughs) (laughs) Quick, cut that! Cut that! (laughs) And that's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. Credit for the music bed in our Great Courses Plus promo goes to Damien, Josiah, Johansson, and Anthony Bell. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction podcast page is listed under the News tab. 
Sugi and I are not up for any Oscars this year, so we don't care about the Academy, but we do care about you, our listeners, and we would love it if you would show your appreciation for this show by signing up for the Great Courses Plus free trial. If enough of you do, that will make them want to sponsor our show in the future and giving us a rating on iTunes. We'll post a link to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod and on Twitter at FNF Talk and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. Happy reading.